Well, good morning, folks. Today we have, uh, we continue in our series on the journey to Bethlehem, but we've already been to Bethlehem and we're, we've entered uh, into the time after the nativity. Uh, but we carry on trying to, with, with our process of, of trying to study the, the stories of, of the season and, and get one more thing that we perhaps did not know about them in a way of enriching them. Today, we have an interesting story. Um, and it's one that I hope will help us reflect on what Christmas means to us uh, in ways. I, I've, I've spent an awful lot of time uh, every year, but particularly this year, wondering, you know, what, what is Christmas? What are people's expectations for Christmas? What does Christmas mean to you? I've, I've asked everyone in my life, it seems, from, from uh, some of the most poignant answers came from with a guy I call Little Man, uh, my son, Sadir. Um, and, and, and I've asked uh, uh, people just in, in regular conversation, what does Christmas mean to you? And one of the things I've discovered is that a lot of people, most people, I would think, uh, don't usually respond with words about the incarnation of God, that, about God being enfleshed. They don't usually answer in terms of the Messiah. Um, and that's interesting to me. You know, Chris, Christmas, one of the things that I've uh, been teaching the, the, the kids is, is just to help them remember that, that Christmas was, it began as a pagan holiday. It wasn't originally a Christmas. In fact, it was outlawed here in the United States and still actually in the, in the, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts was, was, was outlawed until the 20th century uh, because it is one of those holidays that was not original to the Jews and was not original to Christians, but came uh, as a consequence of the co-option of Christianity by the empire. Uh, and we basically, if you if you know the story, it basically was a pagan holiday, uh, the 21st that celebrated the solstice. And uh, it was a great, great feast. And they just, uh, the, the, the state church just simply said, no, we can't have this this being pagan. So they they uh, overlaid uh, the celebration of the nativity onto this day, because we're not actually sure what day uh, Jesus was born. We have some reasonable level of confidence of what year he was born, but that's about as close as we can get. What I found is that it, ironically, you know, the church began or Christmas began as a pagan holiday and uh, it's, it's ironically returned to being a pagan holiday in the sense of pagan, meaning uh, something that is, is beyond the faith. When, when asked most folks speak of buying and buying gifts and the pressures of all that. And, and they talk lovingly, perhaps, or sometimes not so lovingly about the, the task of setting up a Christmas tree and how long will they keep it up and decorating their house with uh, Christmas lights. Uh, they talk about the pressures of, 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 of getting those best bargain prices and about the gifts that they hope to buy and wrap and even to receive. But rarely do people answer the question about their expectations for Christmas um, with language that talks about the incarnation. How different our situation is today from the time of the first century. In those days, uh, to, to know it was Christmas, you know, they didn't have, uh, you know, Simeon and Anna, they didn't have any sort of Black Friday or any elevator music or anything like that to sort of signal, okay, you're supposed to pivot now. Uh, it's no longer ordinary time. Something special is happening. Something special is coming. Uh, they didn't have any of those types of cues, no massive displays of, of lighting. You know, the first neighbor who put up the Christmas lights, you know, uh, you know, at, after Halloween, 
none of those things told them to get ready. They had to be much more alert. And, and so we see this portrait today of some expectant and attentive Jews of the first century and how what happened on Christmas Day changed their lives forevermore, actually. Now, we have that uh, all of that in dramatic relief in the way that Luke portrays this story. So we're, we've been staying with the, the gospel of Luke. And uh, unlike the other stories we remember during Christmas tide, I think this one is one that is not actually filled with a lot of great drama. You know, there's there there are no angels, you know, uh, that are, that are uh, suddenly erupting in song and interrupting your sleep or any of those things and making these grand pronouncements. No, this is something very, very ordinary that happened all the time. And so as I imagine it being put in, in, in Luke's portrait of uh, the grand you know, tapestry in which he has illustrated for us who Jesus is, um, this would be one of those uh, uh, pieces that's sort of like stuck in the corner there. So as you're staring at the story of the nativity scene, your eyes might eventually move over here to the left into this corner and see this small little motif here, the story of Simeon and Anna. And, and so it's not necessary for you to get Luke's message that you see this message, but if you pause and ponder and look at the story of Simeon and Andrew, it'll rich, enrich the way we understand the whole portrait. You know, artists that do that, right? Um, and so that's the way I imagine this story. So we imagine that we're at a museum and we have just focused on images of the nativity. And, and uh, we just want to pause this morning and, and focus on uh, the image of Simeon and Anna and just ask ourselves, why? Why did he put that in his painting? Why did Luke include this? The others didn't include it. Why did Luke? What was he trying to say? And I don't really know. I have to speculate, and scholars have done a lot of speculation on that. Uh, so I'm just going to give you some thoughts, you know, have a conversation about it. Uh, what might have been his reasons? Well, one of the things I've been trained to do is think about, well, when was the author writing and what was going on when he was writing and what might we glean from that about his intention. It's all, you know, speculation because I can't talk to Dr. Luke. Um, but uh, one of the things that comes to mind is that we know that the gospel of Luke was published on or about 85 in the common era. So uh, many, you know, long, long time after Jesus had already been crucified. Uh, and what we know has happening then was something very significant in the lives of, of Christians. Uh, well, at the time, they weren't called Christians. They were called Christian Jews or Jewish Christians. Uh, and that's significant because what was going on, what happened in 85 in the common era was the Senate of, of Yamnia, uh, the Senate, a Senate of Jews from all over the world. Remember, there was the diaspora. The Jews had been dispersed all over the world. And so from time to time, they would they would gather. And uh, and at this time, they gathered. And one of the things that they, they wanted to, to do was solve a problem. So you know how it works in politics when you when you uh, when you are in a majority 
you can do what you want from a power perspective. And the, and the, the ones that were in the majority in Judaism at the time throughout the world were the, the party associated with the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the Essenes and others weren't, you know, weren't, you know, weren't, weren't uh, there. The Sadducees mostly having been assassinated uh, when the, when the temple fell during the Roman, uh, when the Romans came in and destroyed the temple. So pretty much all you had left were the Pharisees and this group of people who were known as Jewish Christians and the ones in power were the Pharisees. And at this Senate of Yamnia, they voted and, and issued the Edict of Yamnia, which was an edict authorizing the eviction of all Jewish Christians from the synagogues. So that was what was going on when Luke wrote his gospel. And I have a sense that that was pretty important, uh, a pretty important detail. In other words, if you were to ask, to whom was he writing? Well, there would be multiple audiences that this preacher would have been addressing. Certainly it would have been uh, his Jewish Christians, his brethren, the women and men who were part of those who chose to express their Judaism through the following, uh, through the discipleship of Jesus of Nazareth. But so too would be would he have been addressing the dominant political power, which would have been the Pharisees within within the the, the, the group of of, we, we, of of Judaism. So I mention that because um, I think whether they were, if you ask, well, who who was Jesus in this portrait uh, for Jews, whether they were Jewish Christians or Pharisees. I think Luke is saying in this, the details that he provides are first and foremost, when you say, who was, who was this Jesus? He, he, uh, Luke answers, Jesus, you should know, was a good Jew. He had come to fulfill the mission of the Jews. You see, they, they were there, it tells, Luke tells us, they were there at the temple because the 40 days of, of, uh, had passed that was made it time for Jesus's ritual cleansing and as the firstborn of their family for them to offer back to God uh, their son, their firstborn son um, at, at the ritual of cleansing. So think about this. These it, what, we, what we learn here, if you just do a little bit of the math, uh, Mary, first of all, had traveled pregnant from from Nazareth down to uh, Bethlehem, uh, actually Ankaim, and, and, and then and then subsequently to Jerusalem and then and then to Bethlehem. Then they had the baby, which required them to travel once again down to Bethlehem. And then they went for the circumcision to the temple at Jerusalem and then back to Nazareth and then back down to, from Nazareth to Jerusalem. Jerusalem yet again, you know, um, with the baby, you know, to do this uh, ritual cleansing at the temple that was in accordance with the law of Moses. A lot of travel. And if you, if you remember what it's like to have a brand new baby traveling at 70 miles over those treacherous mountains, you can imagine uh, how difficult that was. And Luke includes this detail. And I, I'm thinking that, wow, what an impressive testimony to Mary and Joseph and their understanding and, and Luke's understanding that this Jesus was a good Jew. And the, the story that Luke is going to tell as he continues uh, his gospel and the acts of the apostles is constantly going to show that Jesus came not to supersede the law, not to um, create some new religion, but if anything, to intensify 
the, the word of Moses, the law of Moses. He complied with it. He taught it. He, he called people to it. Uh, now, by the way, one of the things that I, I, I didn't mention is that the battle, the family battle was over some things that for us were um, would seem perhaps less significant today. But 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 these these Jewish Christians were kicked out because they were uh, doing two things that were unacceptable to the dominant political party. They were extending monotheism to people who were not born Jewish, who were not born of the blood. They were extending monotheism, the worship of their God, to people who were not in that tribe, born in the right tribe. And the other thing they were doing is they were saying, in all these dietary laws, we no longer need to comply with. And so there was, there was a family dispute over how to be Jewish. What's the best way to be Jewish? And for this reason, they were kicked out of the synagogues. And it took some decades for that to happen completely. But what, what erupted was this schism. And in the midst of this schism, Luke writes, tells us this story that tells us very clearly that Mary and Joseph were good law abiding Jews. And that's how they brought up Jesus. And then ultimately throughout the rest of his portrait, you were going to see he shows that Jesus never superseded the law, but called people further. In fact, he was not uh, to abrogate Torah. He was the fulfillment of Torah. He was the means. He was the way by which we fulfill Torah. Now, why am I spending so much time talking about this? Uh, well, one, I, I think it's, it does help us to understand you know, this thing about a family schism. But what we see in our history is there was an anti-Judaism that arose in Christianity. And that anti-Judaism ultimately became racialized and it became something we experienced tragically over and over again as anti-Semitism. So anti-Semitism is merely anti-racism, excuse me, anti-Judaism that is writ large and, and cast upon a particular race. These people who are other than us, we are justified in discriminating against them and oppressing them. Uh, they are the other, but we're okay because we have these religious things we're fighting about. And that's the real reason that we are throwing them out. That's the real, real reason we are keeping them in these ghettos. And so this is something that we know happens among us Christians. And so it's real important for us to remember that Jesus was a Jew and he came to fulfill the law. And so our racialized anti-Semitism um, uh, uh, arose you know, from this thing. And it's very helpful for us to remember this thing that we Christians have often forgot, that Christianity is so is part of Israel. As Peter read to us, you know, he talked about the Israelites. The church plus the Jews equals Israel. We, the church, have been grafted into the, the tree and become part of Israel. We share the same mission with our, our Jewish brethren. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, one of the things that we are asking ourselves here in America today is, are we experiencing the same kind of thing? Are we, in fact, um, taking uh, our racism and justifying it on the basis of religious differences? And one of the things that we're taking a good look at right now is to what extent, where it's a question, to what extent has white evangelicalism 
doing done and doing the same thing that we have done that led to anti-Semitism. To what extent are there parallels here? What can we learn from this experience? So I want to leave that as a question and just have you ponder this notion of they went to the temple, this, this one who was who had no sin went there to be cleansed, to be ritually cleansed, though he had no sin. He was God's son. Why was that done? And it was to show that he came to fulfill the law. So who was he to the Jews? Who was he to Jewish Christians? I've mentioned that. Who was he to Simeon? Let's look at Simeon. And you see him in Rembrandt's picture there, uh, his painting, his very famous painting of this, this event. Who was he to Simeon? And what I think we learned there was that to Simeon and to Anna, this babe, this Christmas meant that God was faithful. God is faithful. God is steadfast in his love for God's people. And God's people are all of God's created order. So how do, why am I saying that? That's what, that's what Christmas meant to Simeon. Well, for, for well, ever since their, their captivity in Egypt and then their, their, their exile in Babylon, and then again and again, the Jews had, had experienced this oppression, uh, the oppression that they now experienced only you know, from, the, from the Romans in the first century, they had experienced many times. And a righteous Jew like Simeon could not be content until Israel no longer lived under pagan overlords. The Jews chafed under the burden of tribute and taxes. We've talked about that earlier. So the great question for faithful Jews is, will God be faithful? Is God faithful? Has God forgotten us? Are we all alone? Are we isolated? Will God fulfill God's part of the covenant, which is, which is to deliver us, to deliver us from oppression? Will he judge these pagans? Will he judge these oppressors? Will he call them to judgment and, and convict them of, their, of their, their cruel ways? Will he liberate us from their wicked grasp and set up the ultimate kingdom that's, prophet, that's promised by the prophets? Will that ever happen? And why hasn't it happened yet? And those were the questions that in the first century, certain groups, particularly the Pharisees, good Pharisees, thought uh, that would, you know, were being answered. They thought that uh, the coming age would be a time of freedom. And they had begun to think about uh, that, that it was secretly being inaugurated. And, uh, and so they, what they did is that people like Simeon kept the Sabbath uh, very carefully, week by week, hoping and praying that the great Sabbath, the, the Jubilee of Jubilee, was about the about to come the time when God would in fact uh, complete the work of rescuing Israel. That was the day of the Lord. They were looking for it. They yearned and they prayed for messianic time, the time when the Messiah would come, um, a Kairos time, a new kind of time. Uh, you know, the time when the same thing. Uh, would happen in everyday life as happened when they went to the temple, an intersection of our world with God's world. God penetrating our time, erupting it into our time and making it holy that, that our time would be one with God's time. And that's what happened week after week, every Sabbath when they prayed, as Luke tells us, Simeon and Anna prayed. So where there was this hope, this hope of righteous and pious Jews like them, uh, that, that all those times of Sabbath rest would at last come rushing together uh, as, as a true jubilee, as a true freedom movement. 
not just because they wanted to be delivered from oppression, but also because they wanted to share in God's eternal Sabbath, God's ultimate rest, that peace and joy of work that's been completed, that's been perfected. That was their hope. That was their expectation. That's what they wrote about in the, in the, in the writings that we see from the first century. And so Simeon and Anna waited expectantly. Their expectation at the time of that first Christmas was quite concrete. They prayed, Luke tells us, for the consolation, the parakletos, the, the consolation and deliverance of Israel. That's what he'd been praying for. And so led by the spirit, which Luke tells us, this is a perfect acting in the role of a prophet when he uses that language. Led by the spirit, Simeon comes into the temple and there he held Jesus in his arms. Now, uh, most scholars would say that Simeon was likely the priest to whom they brought, uh, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus because he held Jesus in his arms the way the priest would do during this rite. And then he blessed God, he blessed the father holding the babe in his arms, just as like I would baptize a baby. He said, now, master, you are dismissing your servant in peace, just as you said, these eyes of mine have seen your salvation when you made ready in the presence of all peoples, light, light, light for revelation to the nations and glory for your people, Israel. And so I can, I can go now. I've seen it. I know that you are faithful. I know that you are steadfast. You have delivered on the promises. You are who I always thought you are, my Lord. That's what Christmas looked like to Simeon. That's what Christmas looked like to Anna. The promise of God fulfilled. Now think about Simeon's words. One moment of holding the child in his arms and he knew that at last God had returned to the temple. At last God was with us. That moment wiped out all of his past anxieties about that, all of his past fears. Nothing else mattered. He could depart this earth then and there. So that's Simeon and I think Anna and others like them painted into this portrait. What about Mary? What about Mary? I think always of Mary as representing disciples. She, with the baby in her womb, was the first to say yes to Jesus as something other than a mere child, as, as God's child. So Mary is, to me, the first disciple and the, the uh, epitome of what it means to be a disciple, never having said no to Jesus. Uh, the babe was, to her, according to Simeon's words, was to be the cause of, notice these words, of falling and rising, falling and rising. Now, I don't know about you guys, I'm used to those words being in the other order, rising and falling. This is a very odd way for us in our language to express it. This would be, they would be the cause of falling and rising. And this was, this was who would be to, to, to Mary. And, and, and notice the words Simeon says to Mary and, and to Joseph. This boy is assigned to be the cause of falling and rising of many, many in Israel, and to be a sign that generates opposition so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And, and, and Mary, a sword is going to pierce your heart. To this 
first disciple to this epitome of disciples, this Jesus, this babe, was certainly a sign of God's promise, but was so much more. We'd be a cause for falling and rising. As I think about what was going on then in their political situation where there was this group of Jewish Christians who who were becoming minorities who were who as they challenged Israel to to uh, to be Israel in a new way in this way of Jesus this way of love uh, they, they were hearing a, a very loud resounding no they were being kicked out of their synagogues and uh, and what and what what they were uh, talking about when they said the way of love is this way of Jesus was this way of falling and rising this way of the man who taught them that in order to live you must die who constantly talked of picking up your cross and and carrying it who, who talked of 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 um, we must fall before we can rise. Jesus teaching us that, that, that when we have been arrogant, we must be humbled before we can be human. We must be humbled before we can be human. Again and again, this is Jesus' teaching. And I, I think of this message to us here in America, new ways of living with each other. We here have had a, a majority, a significant majority that is used to things being uh, you know, organized in our society being organized in a particular way, just like it was for these Pharisaic Jews who had the power. And suddenly we have folks who are, who are saying, no, we must, those old ways must die. We must fall. We must, we must rise up. We must rise up, like it says in Hamilton, and live in new ways. Um, and and uh and what we see is, is, is Simeon predicts that this person and this word, this teaching about us falling and becoming humble and making space so that others might live before we can rise up generates opposition and it generates an opposition that will pierce your heart. So who is this child to marry? Who is this child to those of us who, who are able to, um, empathize with Mary. It's, it's, I, I think the answer that Christmas means that this babe is one who not only will um, fulfill the promises of God, but in so doing, he will teach us that we must fall to our knees and be open to all the things that God has created, including the reordering of our ways, those ways that we have cherished, those ways that are so uh, common to us that we just accept them as the way things have always been. We must fall and those ways must fall and we must rise up with new ways. I think that uh, that certainly will, will cause us to experience all sorts of opposition as we bring this kingdom teachings into the world and certainly is going to pierce our heart. But yet we know that's the way that God is fulfilling our promise. So who is this Jesus? Well, where are you in the story? If you look at this, are you with Simeon? You with Anna? With Mary? Joseph? Well, as I think about it, that a thought occurs to me that we're, at least I am not, 
able to locate myself in either of those places, certainly not capable of ascending to Mary's level. And certainly her situation is different than ours. I think that we are not prophets like Simeon and Anna, and we are not Joseph and like Mary, we're disciples, but we are, we are in a different place than she. Now we certainly have a lot of the things that she might've experienced self-doubt fears, feeling at times like we have been completely left alone the feeling very isolated, feeling evicted from our places of worship or from our ways of life. We might feel as though we have been abandoned. We may feel that our loved ones have abandoned us right now. We may feel that God has abandoned us, uh, perhaps leaving us to diseases that uh, that that signal what for us may be the end, or at least that, 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 that scare us into believing that. We may feel that our loved ones have abandoned us, and so too has God left us to our own. And so we're lonely, and we feel out of favor, and we feel, um, you know, just we yearn for some sign of hope. Well, to me, when I think of that reality, and I have felt that sense of loneliness. I have sent, I have felt that sense of irrelevance recently in my life, and I feared that. I don't want to be irrelevant. When I think about that, I'm comforted by realizing I am not like Simeon. I'm not like Anna, and I'm not like Mary. And the place where I locate myself in that story is with the babe, with the babe being held in Simeon's arm. And what I mean by that is, remember this, and this is what I thought of. We are the body of Christ. We, these people to whom Jesus is sent, have, have because of that, uh, we, we have been grafted into the vine. We have been grafted into the olive tree. We are now part of the body of Christ. We are the babe enfleshed. So we are that baby. And so as we think about that, and I ask you to really think about what does it mean that you are the body of Christ at Christmas? Well, to me, it means something beautiful. It means that that um, we ourselves have been incorporated in the body. We are his body. It means we are that infant. And that is Christmas means that God now holds each and every one of us close And through Simeon, who is in the spirit, through Simeon's words, he is saying, God is saying, this is my son. This is my daughter with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved. Through our baptism, we ourselves have been called by name to become children of hope. We have have been called to be that promise, the fulfillment of that promise, that that hope is on its way, that that God is on his way, that God is already present in the world, and nothing in our past matters. There is only this new beginning. Whatever we feared in the past, whatever happened to us as we were growing up, whatever happened to us at the hands of a, of a harsh mother or a harsh father or a, a difficult spouse or all those things that we have done that make us feel worthy of being isolated, all those things no longer matter. Nothing in the past matters. There is only this new beginning. And what we have feared in the past has no meaning. At Christmas, God holds us close adores us and makes us the sign 
of God's promise, makes us the sign of God's presence in the world. And that's the reality that we see in the light of Jesus, that we ourselves are babes in the arms of God. Therefore, I think, like the song says, we ourselves can sleep in heavenly peace. And I know a lot of you need some sleep right now, some peaceful sleep. So I hope you'll ponder this picture and recognize that you are in the hands of God. And that's what Christmas means. We too learn to sing at last with the angels, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace among those whom God favors. And we know that God favors you and me, just like that babe. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.